Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, 1 through 25. It's on page 1016 in the Black Pew Bibles. Published among us, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of, our, of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This week, uh, we just had Thanksgiving, but this week now we start our five-week series. We're starting our series uh, on the Advent, which means the, the coming. We recognize this time during the first, the four Sundays before Christmas. Uh, it started in Germany in the 1800s, and, and it's often been observed by Christians all over the world. It's a time of celebration, and it's a time of remembrance as we remember Christ, as we celebrate the coming, the first coming of Christ, and as we celebrate Christmas. Um, my intro my intro is a little lengthy as I'm trying to set the stage not only for today, but for several weeks in advance. So please bear with me, but we'll pray, and then we will get started. So if you would, just pray with me. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for those that are here today, those that wanted to be here. Lord, it's just, we got a lot of folks out, a lot of folks sick, a lot of folks traveling. We ask for travel mercies for those that are coming back home now. We thank you for a, a great time of Thanksgiving, as it was said earlier. Thankful for time that we got to spend with family this past week, Lord. But we ask now that you would turn our hearts to you, 
that we would be focused wholeheartedly on you, that, that our attention would be laser-focused on you, Father, that we would honor you in all that we do. Father, I ask that you would just speak through me, that it would be all from you, it would be nothing from me, that you would just be glorified in everything that is said, Father. We love you. We praise you it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt truly, truly hopeless? Like you're in a, in a low point and you really, really feel like there, there, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. A, a low point uh, of hope where you feel like you don't even have a shot. You don't even have a, a puncher's chance. I broke my leg in fourth grade, and if you've heard this story, just don't roll your eyes. I'm just going to tell it again for everybody that hasn't heard it. But I broke my leg in fourth grade, my right leg, this one right here. It's doing pretty good now, but in fourth grade, broke my right leg. And it was close to my growth plate, and it healed fine, uh, and then I played sports. It didn't affect me at all. There was no pain, nothing like that. I went for a checkup freshman year of high school, found out that my right leg was two inches shorter than my left leg. Kind of weird, right? Found out it's shorter, and they said if, that I, if I didn't get it fixed, that I would have all these problems later on in life. I'd probably lose my back, my posture. I would have a lot of back pain. I would have, have leg pain, things like that. And so my parents said that we should do it, so we, we did it. They, what they did to fix it is they cut my femur. That's the bone that I broke. They cut my femur in two, and they attached a metal rod to it. And what we would do twice a day, we had this big magnet thing, this, this heavy thing, and we would sit it right here on my leg twice a day, and we'd turn it on. And what it would do is it would unravel that rod and essentially stretch my leg just a little bit at a time every single day. And so then whenever the leg got the correct length, then they came back in, took the rod out, and then the bone, it's crazy how our body do this, the bone would grow back in to where it was hollow before. And so that's what happened. As you can tell, it was a great experience. It was the best. No, I'm kidding. It was horrible. It was terrible. Everything about it was bad. There was nothing good about it. I can't give you any great story or anything like that. I can give you some terrible stories, actually. But it was terrible. It was brutal. It was not only painful. Um, it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced to this day. Never felt anything like it. But the worst part was I could literally not do anything for myself. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't move my leg at all, so I could not walk. I could, not, I, couldn't, I could barely even use a walker, and I could only do that if someone helped me get up. It was terrible. If I, had to, if I wanted something to eat, I had to get somebody to help me. If I wanted to get up, go to the bathroom, I had to get somebody to get me up out of bed. It was, it was miserable. And they cut through this side of my leg here, and so I still have the scars, but there was no strength. Couldn't lift it. Couldn't do anything with it. It was stuck like this for a really, really long time. I had physical therapy twice a day. It was pretty grueling, pretty tough. We would go to the physical therapy place in Atoka, and if mom would go with me, then she would come in, and then she would have to go sit outside because while we're in there, there's this small Asian man <laughs> taking my leg and cranking on it for about an hour and a half, and I'm just... It, I, and I'm just losing it. And so mom would have to go outside. She's like, nope, I can't do that. Can't handle that, right? So she would go sit outside. I'm just painting the picture here. None of it was fun. But I remember this one particular night. I was just struggling. I, 
I had, I had essentially reached my low point, and it just felt like I can't do anything for myself. I'm completely relying upon everyone else, and, and I just reached a low point. And I remember sitting there with my sister, with my mom, sitting there, and I just, I just kind of broke down because it was really, really, really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like the doctors had told me, you're going to make a full recovery. You'll be able to recover. You'll be able to play sports, be able to do all these different things. And I believed them. I didn't think they were lying to me, right? But in that moment, when you've reached this low point, it's hard to see the light, right? And it was really, really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. At the beginning, I was sure. But as time went on, my hope faded, right? It was really hard to believe. And in that moment, that low point, I was... Hopeless. The Israelites are in a similar place in redemptive history at this time in Luke. They're at their low point for hope. They are, you could say that they were hopeless. As you can tell, hope is the theme. It's the theme of this series. It's the theme of this sermon. Hope is, is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. And at that point in history, Israel is running low on hope. Um, but I think it's important to spend time discussing this theme of hope, to set, to set this up, to, to lay the groundwork for weeks to come. The title is Hope Announced. That's for this week. Nativity Through the Eyes of the Luke, that is the whole series. But it's Hope Announced. So we're going to look at the progression of hope for Israel throughout the Old Testament, leading up to our text today where hope is announced. The first thing that we see is, is a hope lost. And where was hope lost? Hope was lost in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is where hope was first lost. God created the world. He said that it was good. He created man, said that it was very good. Man was different than the rest of God's creation because man had a soul. Man had a conscience. Man had the capacity, the ability to have a relationship with God. And man did, Adam and Eve. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They had a personal relationship with the Creator. Mankind was right with God. But all that changed when sin entered the world. Adam and Eve, they sinned. They directly disobeyed God for the first time. And as a result, they were cast out of the garden. They were separated from God. A barrier was placed between them and between the Lord. And there was no way for them to get back to God. There was no way for them to have a right relationship with Him. No way for their sin to be atoned for. That is where hope was lost. That's where the need for hope comes in. The hope is in something happening that will make it to where they can be right with God once again, right? So hope in the garden is broken. Hope is lost. And then we see a glimpse of hope um, in the curse of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, we're provided with what I would call a glimpse, a glimpse, just a small piece of hope. God is giving the curse to man, woman, and serpent. When he curses the serpent, this is what he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first slight picture that we see of hope. It's the first mention of the gospel. And the hope is in that descendant of the woman coming and crushing the serpent's head, right? So that is the first little glimpse that we see. The descendant of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and then man can be made right with God through that descendant. But who will that descendant be? When will that descendant come? Next year? The year after that? Five years? Seven years? A thousand years? Five thousand years? Who knows? 
No one knows, but there's a glimpse of hope that one day that descendant will come, will crush the serpent's head, and we can be made right with God again. And then in Genesis 12, we have what I would call a glimmer of hope in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. At the end of the calling, uh, God tells Abram the, the most important part in Genesis 12. Uh, this is the covenant that God made with Abram. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, this is the most important part, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So through this man, through Abram, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But is that because of Abram? Is that because Abram's going to do something great? Is that because Abram's going to solve world hunger? No, no. It's because this descendant that was promised is going to come through Abram's line. The serpent crusher is going to come through Abram's lineage. So we see a glimmer of hope. And then uh, what we get to is I think we see a temporary hope uh, made in animal sacrifices. That God gives people temporary hope. He allows them to make animal sacrifices to atone for their sin temporarily but not forever, right? He allows them to do that so that they could uh, be made right with him temporarily. So in Isaiah 1, he says this, <clears throat> the Lord has had enough. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of well-fed bees. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me. So God made a way for sin to be atoned for, but it was just for a time. And so we just see this theme, you see this theme. The hope is lost. How does the hope return? How do we have hope once again? And we just see snapshots of it throughout the Old Testament. He made a way for sin to be atoned for, but it was temporary. There had to be an eternal hope. There had to be an eternal sacrifice that would bring hope forever. There had to be a way that man could be made right with God. And soon it's going to be announced. The next thing we see is the eternal hope coming in Isaiah 53. After Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 6, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And all, like, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the man, the serpent crusher that was promised before, he's going to come. That's how hope is returned. That's how hope is restored. That's how we can have this eternal hope. But he hasn't come yet, as we are in the text today. He hasn't come yet. And so Israel has reached their low point in history. They, they know he's coming. They have this hope in God that, 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 that this Savior, this serpent crusher is going to come. 
But it's been a long, long time. They said it's going to happen, right? Hey, the servant crusher, he's going to come. The descendant, he's going to come. But it's been a really long time. And so over time, their hope has waned, kind of like mine had, right? I knew I was going to get better. I knew I was going to recover. But over time, you just get down because it's promised and it hasn't come yet. And so Israel is at a low point in hope. The hope is in the Savior. The hope is in the man that's going to come, that will be pierced for our transgressions, that will be crushed for our iniquities. He is the promised hope. If you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 1. We're going to jump into our text today. I think we've spent enough time setting the stage. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 25. We'll go through that text and we will get out of here. So this is the gospel according to Luke. So obviously Luke wrote this book. It's the gospel according to him. Luke is a historian, he's a physician, and he's also a theologian. So he's a Gentile. He became an intimate acquaintance of Paul. He stayed with Paul during his second imprisonment uh, right to the end. Luke's is the longest of the Gospels as well. Those are just some facts for you about the Gospel of Luke. But Luke was a historian. In verse 3, he tells us that he has spent uh, time following the things closely from the beginning. So Luke is very detail-oriented. He had spent time tracking down each detail, tracing everything thoroughly. Uh, Luke dotted all his I's, crossed all his T's. Luke is a historian. Luke was also a theologian. He emphasized his love in the gospel. That's his biggest theological emphasis is on love. Matthew in his gospel was on royalty. Mark's was on power. Luke's is on love. Those are the major emphasis in those books theologically. But also salvation is more prominent in Luke's than any others. He was also a physician. He was a medical doctor. He was called the beloved physician but not necessarily because of his excellency as a doctor, but because he was a lover of people. Luke mentions individuals more than any other gospel. He also speaks of women more than any other gospel. He speaks of babies and children more than any other gospel. He speaks of the poor more than any other gospel. Luke had a heart for people. So yeah, he's all these things. He's a historian. He's a theologian. He's a uh, physician, but he's a lover of people. And Luke is writing this to his friend Theophilus so that he may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. He wants his buddy, Theophilus, to know the truth. And so he's given him the most accurate account that he could possibly give. Isaiah the prophet, he had promised before that before the glory of the Lord will be revealed, there would come a, a voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the wilderness a highway for our God. Malachi said something similar in Malachi 4, 5. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Malachi 3, 1, he also said this. He said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And, he, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of Hosts. When Luke wrote this gospel, more than 400 years had passed since Malachi's time. Malachi is a prophet of God. He's speaking to the people. And Malachi says, hey, this messenger is going to come before the Lord comes. Before this Savior comes, before this serpent crusher, before this descendant of the woman comes, a messenger is going to come before him. 
a forerunner, someone who prepares the way. He is going to come. But 400 years had passed without a word from a prophet, without a word from the Lord. That 400 years is often called the 400 years of silence, meaning God did not speak through a prophet. An angel did not appear. God did not speak directly to his people for 400 years. Time had gone on, and so their hope had faded. They're at their low point. No sign of the promised Messiah, no sign of the forerunner to come. But like, like a darkness in the winter, even though it's long, the sunrise will come. Hope will be grasped. The light at the end of the tunnel will be reached soon. Verses 5 through 7. Let's just read that together. We'll just systematically work our way through the text. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter, daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Zechariah was an ordinary country priest. That's what he was. He was one of about 8,000 priests living in his area at the time in Palestine. So priests were divided uh, according to an arrangement of 24 divisions. They had about 300 priests in each division. Zechariah's division is the division of Abijah. And he served, uh, everyone in that division served two one-week periods a year. So 56 priests were chosen by lot to participate each day. And it just so happens that we'll see here in a second that Zechariah, it was his lucky day, he had got chosen. Zechariah was a really pro uh, common name for priests. It means the Lord has remembered. And Elizabeth, she came from good stock also. She came from priestly descent. She's one of, um, she came from Aaron's daughters. Aaron was a priest. She came from priestly descent. Both Zechariah and his wife, it says that they were upright. It says that they were righteous. What does that mean? It means they love the Lord. It means they were believers, right? They love the Lord. They sought to please him. They weren't sinless, but they were saved. They followed God's law. Their lives conformed to God's law. They were faithful. They had been blessed in pretty much every way you could imagine, except with children. It's the only area of their life they hadn't been blessed with. Elizabeth was barren, and they had aged out of this at the time of, uh, in their life. They knew that it wasn't in the cards for them to have kids, right? In infertility in any culture, is an incredibly difficult and, and painful, hurtful thing. But in Hebrew culture, it was to the nth degree. It was, it was if, you, if you were barren, if you were unable to have children, it was because you were considered unrighteous, because you weren't good enough to have kids. Oh, the Lord's punishing you for something you did. That was the thought. And that, we know that's not true because it says that they were righteous, right? So that can't be the case. But they had been blessed in every way except in the area of children. In their culture, it was considered a disgrace or even a punishment for past sin. They, that's what they thought. And we see several examples of, of it being seen this way. Hagar, she looked down on Sarah for being infertile in Genesis 16. Leah referred to her barrenness as misery in Genesis 29. Remember in 1 Samuel, Hannah, remember Hannah? She wept bitterly because she was unable to have children. It carried a stigma in Jewish thinking. If you couldn't have children, uh, they'd say it's because you weren't righteous. But that's not true. 
the Lord had just not blessed them with any children up to this point. Verse 8 through 10. Now while he was serving in the priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And Zechariah, oh, excuse me, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So before the two daily services, four sets of lots were cast uh, to determine who was going to uh, complete the ceremony. And so it was random. And in this case, the incense lot fell on Zechariah. And in an instant, as soon as that lot fell on him, he had reached his professional peak. This is a big deal. This is not something that anyone just gets to do. In fact, once the priest got chosen for one of these things, they could never be chosen again. So this is a big deal. The, the honor of offering incense was the grandest event in Zechariah's life up to this point. Many priests never got the privilege to do this. This was a big deal. You can imagine how he must have felt reaching the height of his profession. Think about it. Think about it in your life. You reached the height of your profession. Someone asked you to do the greatest thing that you could possibly do in your occupation, in your profession. His blood's pumping. There's probably a little sweat on his brow. And then it's time. It's time to go in there. It's time to do what he was supposed to do. Outside, there's worshipers praying. It's time to step into the holy place. It's time to burn incense. What could be better than this? This is a bucket list moment for him already. This is something that he only gets to do once in his life if he ever gets to do it, and now is the time. So this is a big deal. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Zechariah is about to mark off one of his bucket list items. And an angel of the Lord appears to him. We don't know if it was in human form or a different form, but we know that it was dramatic because Zechariah was real scared, right? He was real scared. Uh, this isn't, uh, this isn't a, a baby with wings that everyone has a statue of at their house. That's not that because I don't think Zechariah would be very scared. But this was also no random angel. This wasn't just any angel. We find out here in a, in a little bit. This was Gabriel. This was Gabriel. Do you remember, does anyone remember the last time that we saw Gabriel um, here on Sunday mornings? Does anybody remember? In what text? What book? Anybody? Y'all making me look bad. Anybody? Daniel. In Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel shows up. And there's a lot of parallels that take place uh, here between Gabriel showing up to Daniel and Gabriel showing up to um, Zechariah. But the last time we saw Gabriel was 500 years before this took place in Babylon to Daniel. And now he appears to Zechariah. The, the similarities, Gabriel appeared to Daniel at the time of evening sacrifice. And now he appears to Zechariah at the time of sacrifice as well. Um, and also, does anybody remember what Daniel's reaction was to the angel showing up? Anybody remember? As scared as you could possibly be, right? He was freaked smooth out is a way that you could say it. Daniel was freaked out. It, his exact words, I was frightened and fell on my face. Well, Zechariah, he matched his fear. Zechariah was scared to death also. He was very scared. Zechariah, um, excuse me, Daniel, he was temporarily speechless, which is a bit of a spoiler for Zechariah. And Daniel's encounter, it had to do with the future messianic times. Hey, this, when, when the Messiah is going to come. But now, 
this, this Gabriel talking to Zechariah, his has to deal with the dawn of messianic times, meaning he's going to come soon. We're here. It is about time. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So this brings us to our first point. And the first point is the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. For 400 years, I mean, do we really understand how long that is? 400 years? That is a really long time. And for that time, a sign had not been given. God had not spoken through a prophet. An angel had not appeared. And it's coming to a close. This, this 400 years of silence, complete silence, is interrupted with a loud bang. It's interrupted. It's, it's, a, it's a quiet morning on a farm interrupted by a rooster crowing. It's a long, dark night ended by a beautiful sunrise. It's a long passage on a ship that suddenly crashes into shore. In one instant, in one moment, Gabriel spoke, and for the first time in, in, in 400 years, prophecy occurred. For the first time in 400 years. This, this event was so important, it was so big, that it had to be the one to break the silence. This event is important. It had to break the silence. The foretelling of the birth of the messenger of Christ had to break the silence because it was that big of a deal. The opening line had to have just slapped Zechariah in the face. Zechariah walks in. He's doing the biggest job that he's ever done in his entire life, right? He's reached his, his, his peak of his professional life. And then all of a sudden he sees this supernatural being that's very scary looking, and he's freaked out, right? And not only that, but then the being starts talking to him and says, Hey, Zechariah, you're, you're actually going to have a son. And not only that, you don't even get to pick his name. I'm going to pick his name. His name's going to be John, right? John means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. So this is a gracious gift for a couple that hadn't been blessed with children. This is the best thing that they could ever imagine. God was for sure gracious. He had absolutely shown favor. But once Gabriel gives the prophecy, he says, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And then we're going to see in a minute, he gives a description of what the boy's going to be like. Zechariah's in his old age. Can you just imagine this happening? He says, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. This is what he's going to be like. Wouldn't that be awesome? You find out you're going to, in, in one moment, hey, you're actually going to have a kid. You've never been able to have a kid before. You're going to have one. And this is what he's going to be like, too. Are we... Are we what if uh, an angel showed up to you, hey, Mr. Jim, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him Nathan. This is what he's going to be like. Rick, you're going to have a boy. You're going to name him Mark. This is, what he's, this is how he's going to be. How crazy is that? This is, this, is, this is crazy. Dad, I was going to ask you this. He always gets weird when I do this. He always, he's like, why do, you always, why do you always say something to me or talk to me? I'm, like, Dad, I got 22 years of experience in this life. Most of the things that I have experience in or, or stories with have to do with him, right? I don't have all this wealth of, I'm not 50 like Pastor, right? He's getting on up there. I don't have that. 
I don't have all this wealth of experience. I've never been to China. I don't have all these stories I can just pull out of nowhere. I got 22 years. So I, a lot of the stories I got come from here. But that, an angel told you, angel comes up, hey, you're going to have a son. This is in 2000. He says, hey, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be Morgan. He's going to have the shortest attention span of all time. He's going to have the worst attention deficit disorder of all time. He's going to, have, uh, he's going to be a degenerate Coca-Cola addict. And not only that, he's going to love to golf, and he's not even going to be that good. Tells you that. Would you still be excited? Yeah, I think so too, right? But what if he showed up to you and said, hey, your kid, no kid, no kid, hey, this kid you're going to have, He's going to be incredible. He's going to be blessed. He is going to show the favor of the Lord. It is going to be obvious. He is going to love the Lord. Your son is going to be something special. It's hard to say. It brings it to the second point. It's the character of John the Baptist, and we're told about what he's going to be like. Verse 14 and 15, it says, And you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He's going to be a delight to you and to your family. And not only is he going to bring joy to you, he's going to bring joy to the public also. He will bring joy. This kid is going to be something. Usually it's the parent telling other parents about their kid. Hey, my kid, man, they're going to be something, right? No. They're telling the parent. This is Gabriel telling the parent, hey, your kid is going to be incredible. He's going to be awesome. In fact, he's going to be, it sounds crazy, but no exaggeration, one of the greatest people that ever lived. This is what Jesus uh, said about him in Luke 7, 28. He said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's this little boy that hadn't been born yet. He's going to be incredible. He's going to be awesome. Not in stature, not in athleticism, not in looks, because none of that matters, right? God looks at, excuse me, we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This kid is going to be something. This kid's going to have a heart like no other. He's going to have a heart for the Lord. Not Abraham, not Joseph, not Daniel, not David. Zachariah and Elizabeth's son that hadn't been born yet, that he just found out is going to be born, he's going to be second only to Christ. Imagine. Imagine hearing this news. Second half of verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink strong wine, excuse me, drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Gabriel saying that John would be a Nazarite, and a Nazarite was a man set apart uh, to be especially devoted to God. From birth, he would be prepared for a special service to God through spiritual disciplines. One of those spiritual disciplines being that he would never take a strong drink. He would never be influenced in that way. He would not be filled by drink, but he would be filled by the Holy Spirit. John's fullness would not be found in what ordinarily fills people. It would be found in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That way, his life would bear a powerful testimony to the Lord. 
And not only that, but he would actually be filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. That's pretty incredible. When else, when do we know of that happening other than now? Bring us to the third point. The purpose of John the Baptist. Verse 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord. Y'all listening? To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Gabriel basically quoted the final two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Remember the prophet Elijah? He was pretty awesome too. He denounced the apostasy of his own people. He withstood the, the pagan prophets of Baal. God actually rained fire down from heaven upon Elijah's request. John the Baptist, this boy that is yet to be born, is going to minister in the same spirit and the same power as Elijah, this, this, this hero of the faith. This boy is going to be special. This is John's destiny, his purpose, his reason for existing. He's going to minister like Elijah before him. Jesus spoke of him in this way, Matthew 17, 11 through 13. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John's ministry, it would change people's hearts so much that it would change the way they lived in their homes. That's pretty powerful. It would change the way that they were in their homes. It would turn fathers' hearts to children and children's hearts to their fathers. That's powerful. This is a very, very powerful ministry. Fathers would awaken to their parental responsibilities. Children would be more obedient and want to be obedient. People would be made ready for the Lord. This is what John's purpose is. To get the people ready for the Lord that's coming. That's his job. To make for the Lord a people prepared. Picture old Zechariah serving in the temple. God hasn't spoken through a prophet in over 400 years, so he's never seen anything in his lifetime. An angel hasn't appeared. He sees a supernatural being. The thing speaks promises him a son who will have God's favor. He speaks of the son's character, speaks of the son's spirituality, speaks of the son's purpose, his ministry, all while quoting the Old Testament like a script. Could you imagine being in that position? How would you react? Zechariah reacted kind of poorly. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. <sighs> he missed it. Had one shot, and he missed it. He doubted. We just listed all the things that happened. He sees a supernatural being that speaks, promises a son, quoting the Old Testament like a script, 
right? That's one reason that Zechariah should have believed, of course. But another, he knew the Old Testament. Zechariah knew the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. He knew about the divine birth of Isaac, the divine birth of Samson, the divine birth of Samuel. He knew of that. He knew that God could do it again, or he should have known. Another reason, he was a priest. He was a man of God. It's not like he's this random guy with no knowledge. He's not an atheist. He's a priest. He should have known. He should have believed. And the third, he was confronted by a being that he knew was supernatural. Who else is this message going to be from? It's got to come from God, and yet he didn't believe. It was serious. He didn't believe. And this was a big deal. He didn't believe that God could do that. Then what else would he not believe? Verse 19 and 20. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He says, I stand in the presence of God. It's meant to shame the priest. It's meant to shame Zechariah on his emphasis uh, on the rejection that Zechariah gave. The price, the price for his unbelief, silence. And that's kind of ironic. God's been silent for 400 years. And the first time he shows up, they don't believe. Isn't that incredible? First time he shows up in 400 years and the people don't believe. So Zechariah was rendered mute. This aged priest would have nine months of silence. He would be silent until the baby came. That's plenty of time to reflect on the situation. Like when you get in trouble as a kid and your mom's like, I want you to sit there and think about what you did for nine months until the baby comes. It's pretty incredible. Verse 21 through 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. This typically didn't take that long. When someone burned incense, they're in and out fairly quickly. So they're like, what is going on with this guy, man? He is taking forever. Zechariah finally gets his shot, and he's in there for an hour. What's going on? So it had taken a long time. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And when he finally did come out, he couldn't even tell them what happened. He couldn't even tell them why he was so late. So he had to communicate with signs. Old Gabriel, he wasn't lying, was he? He wasn't blowing smoke. He said, you're going to be mute. And he was mute. He knew that this wasn't permanent, though, but it was only until the birth of the child. Verse 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying... Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah had so much to tell when he got home. I mean, think about all this just happened to him. First of all, I got, I got to go in the temple. I got to burn incense. That's the first thing. She's like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's, that's the greatest thing that could have ever happened. He can tell that. And then he's like, actually, I saw an angel too. Oh my gosh, that's the best thing to ever happen. And they're like, not only that, we're going to have a kid. Oh my gosh, that's really the best thing that ever happened, right? But he couldn't do that. He gets home and he couldn't tell her what happened. Can you imagine this interaction? I'm just thinking about it. He's like, honey, I'm home. Well, he can't say that actually. He walks in. I guess he's trying to let her know that he's there. I don't know. 
She's like, hey, how was work? And he, he's trying to tell him what happened. It's difficult. He was able to communicate it. And a few days later, Elizabeth, even in her old age, conceived because the Lord can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to do it with. And she says this, she says, the Lord has taken away my reproach. Or some translations say, the Lord has taken away my disgrace. So she's in awe that the Lord has done this. The Lord has taken away my, my shame. The Lord has taken away my disgrace. She's no longer barren, and she gets to rejoice in the future birth of her son. It's incredible. That is the hope that has been announced. It's announced, but it's not here yet, but it's coming. And it's coming in the form of a baby, the Savior of the world. But this baby will not become, excuse me, this baby will not come before the messenger. This baby will not come before the forerunner. Will not come before John the Baptist. Someone will come before the Savior, before the serpent crusher, before the one that can fulfill our hope. Someone's going to come before him, this baby that we talked about. And that baby is going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for the hope that's going to come after him. Every king, every king needs a herald. You know what a herald is? A herald is uh, one who walks into the room to announce that the king is coming. The king is coming now. That's what John the Baptist is. A herald to the king. Saying he's coming. The hope is coming. He's next. The hope is not in this boy. He's just the messenger for the hope that's going to come. And he will come later. Hope isn't here yet, but it has been announced. What do we do with this text application-wise? I think there are several points. First one, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were called righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We just spent Thanksgiving. We sat around a table with family, with close relatives, with loved ones, right? People that know you probably well. Would they say the same thing about you? Would they say, man, they're righteous. Them folks righteous. They walk blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Would those people that know you well, would they say that about you? Secondly, they were righteous and they were blessed also. But just because they were righteous does not mean that everything is going to go right. Just because you're living right does not mean everything's going to go right. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's not that at all. It is not a commission system. No, it's a commission. I'm sorry, it's a system based on grace. Just because you're righteous, just because you're living right, does not mean that everything's going to go well. It's not mean that everything's going to go smoothly. Thirdly, every king needs a herald. John the Baptist was the Lord's herald, the Lord Jesus. He was the forerunner, telling people about Christ before His first coming. 
But you know, Jesus is going to come again. And we're here now in the same role that John the Baptist was, telling the world of the Savior that's going to come. Every king needs a herald. It was John the Baptist then. It's us now. As believers in Christ, it's our job to tell people about Christ before His, his second coming. So, question, do you share the gospel? Do you share the good news? Do you want other people to experience what you experience, this joy that you have? We're singing these songs to the Lord, and you're like, oh, man, it's just so good. You're just singing, you're, man, I just love, I love to worship the Lord. Do you want other people to experience that? Do you want other people to experience church? Experience the love, the community? Do you share the good news? Or do you keep it to yourself? Do you not want others to know? It's been said probably a trillion times. But if you had the cure for cancer, what would you do with it? You give it to absolutely everyone that needs it, right? And the thing is, everyone needs to be saved. Everyone needs Christ needs God. Everyone needs Christ. So do you share Christ with others? Do you share the gospel? I was speaking with a family member the other day, and we we're just talking about our experiences of, 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 of grace in our lives, talking about how the Lord has saved us, made us, made us new, made us right. And, uh, and they said, yeah, I just, I got to this low point. I got to this point where I did not care what happened. I did not care what I had to give up. I did not care who I had to give up. I did not care what I had to do. I just wanted Him. And if you're a believer here, you've been in that same spot. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm looking and you're like, yep, yep, that's it. But if I'm saying that and you're, and you're confused or you don't quite understand, why is that? could be you've never had that experience before. You've never, you've never gotten to the point where you recognize your need for a Savior and your need to be saved. Maybe you've never experienced that before, but you can. I don't want to give the, the spoiler, but I think we've, maybe all of us have read it at this point, but hope did come in the form of Jesus and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died on the cross to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him. Hope did come. And if you believe in him, if you put your faith and your trust and your hope in him, believing that he did it for you, then you can be saved. Then when we're talking about this, when we're sharing experiences, when we're, when we're sharing salvation stories, and you can just, man, you can just agree. If you've never experienced that before, cry out to the Lord. Trust Christ. Trust Him for salvation. Hope, as far as we are in the text, has not come yet. But it has been announced. If you're visiting with us, we're thankful you're here. Come back and see us when our pastor is here. Um, I will warn you, he's a little bit more long-winded than I am. But we asked that you would come back, and he'd be a little bit more polished. But 
We're so glad that you decided to worship with us this morning. Thank you to everybody that got here early, that prepared, that did so much getting ready while we had so many people out. We're thankful that you're here. If you've got questions about anything that I said, I would love to talk to you about it. If you've got questions, I'd love to talk. But hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Hope we, uh, hope you are going to be with us for this December. we got a lot going on. A lot of things to be involved in. We got caroling. That's going to be so much fun. It's one of the best things we do every single year. We got the, the ladies' night on December 7th. We got so many things going on, but we'd love for you to be a part of that, those things with us. But let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for, thank you for a place where we get to worship. Lord, thank you that we don't have to worry about worshiping in the country that we live in. Thank you for people here that love you. And Lord, for those here that don't love you, that have not trusted you, trusted Christ's work on the cross as their own, Lord, I just ask that you would just save them. That you would make them new. Draw them near to yourself. Bring them to repentance. Father, thank you for this hope that we can have in Jesus. Thank you for the example that we have of John the Baptist, of Zechariah, of Elizabeth. Help us to imitate them as we imitate you, Father. We love you. Thank you for this Thanksgiving season. We pray that we would be thinking of what Christmas is truly about, Father, this Christmas season. That we would be focused on you and on the hope that we can have in you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.